pick out your scriptures and turn them to Job chapter 4. Uh, we're in the book of Job. If, uh, if you're new here and Job is an unfamiliar book, uh, just go to Psalm 1 and turn left and you'll see Job there. It's not a book that we often go to. Uh, sometimes we quote it, uh, but I, I would guess that for most of us, uh, there's maybe a little uh, uh, cracking that goes on when we open to the book of Job. Please pray with me. Father God, I ask you to send your spirit here because you tell us in your word that your spirit is sent for many purposes, but one of them is to illuminate our minds and and hearts to the truth that needs to be applied to our lives, to the lives of your church, your body. And we pray that that you do that today as as we hear your word read and applied to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Kosti Hinn, Kosti Hinn, the nephew of prosperity gospel preacher Benny Hinn, joined his ministry and traveled the world in luxury on his jet and had all the luxuries that money could buy. He believed he was serving Jesus Christ and as a result was enjoying the abundant life that Christ promised him. Kosti Hinn writes this, Growing up in the Hinn family, our lifestyle was lavish and our version of the gospel was big business. God's goal was not for to set us free from sin, but to make us rich. We lived in a 10,000 square foot mansion, drove two Mercedes Benzes, vacationed in exotic destinations, and shopped at the most expensive stores. We were abundantly blessed, he writes. Doubts would surface from time to time. What about unsuccessful healing attempts? Well, we were taught that that's the sick person's fault for not believing enough. How about the many prophecies that contradicted the Bible? Despite the questions, I trusted my family because we were so successful. God must be on our side. Then one day, my wife Christine pointed to a verse that I had never seen before. 1 Corinthians 12.30, which read, Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? I was shaken to the core, he writes. There it was, plain as day. Not everybody speaks in tongues. Soon, the domino effect took hold in my life. Other long-standing beliefs began to fail the biblical test. No longer did I believe that God's purpose was to make me happy and healthy and wealthy. Instead, I saw that he wanted me to live for him and for his glory, no matter what my life looked like. In a way, that kind of encapsulates what Job is, is trying to teach us. But the prosperity gospel is so attractive. The prosperity gospel is is in each and every one of our hearts and minds, in little and big places. It promises us good health, wealth, an ease of life, peace, freedom from want. In a way, 
The prosperity gospel promises us heaven on earth, doesn't it? And let's face it, that's attractive. So as we begin to look at our first, first of Job's counselors, Eliphaz, we realize that what Solomon wrote is really true. There's nothing new under the sun. Look with me at chapter 4, starting in verse 1 of the book of Job. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak, the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish. And by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey. And the cubs of the lioness are scattered. We'll pause there. In the last chapter of Job, chapter 3, Job was left hopeless and helpless. If you notice there, and you can even look back a page, he cried out four times, why, 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 why? He's asking why this great suffering has come into his life. And that's our question we naturally ask when pain occurs in our life. Why? Why? Why, O oh Lord? That's the basic question that his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, are going to attempt to answer in chapters 4 through 27. That's the basic question that those three counselors, those three friends, are going to try and answer is Job's why question. Why is this happening to me? And each of his counselors in those chapters, each of his counselors gets about three attempts to, to answer that. We have three cycles of counsel that goes on in those chapters. First, Eliphaz speaks and Job answers. Bildad speaks and Job answers. And Zophar speaks and Job answers. And what we're going to look at is the first cycle of these in detail. And since the counsel is kind of the same, it's kind of repetitious has different nuances, but, but the counsel of those three friends is basically the same. We're going to look at the first cycle, verses nine, uh, chapters nine, uh, 4 through 17, in detail. And then after that, we're going to look at Job's response in detail and examine how he typically responds to his friends. So the first counselor on the scene is Eliphaz. And he brings the prosperity perspective. He brings the prosperity perspective. He's most likely the eldest of the three counselors because he speaks first. And all three counselors, 
Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, all three counselors, say some good things. They say good things. And, and perhaps that's why the book of Job is so confusing, is because they mix some good things in with, with some bad things. They say some things that we should hear and should heed and say some things that we shouldn't. A lot of bad counsel, as we'll see, but some good counsel. And what I want to do is kind of look at some of the, these good pieces of what uh, um, Eliphaz has said today. And look with me at first at chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Eliphaz there says this, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Eliphaz is basically giving some really good counsel here, isn't he? He's, he's helping Job make sense of what's going on here. He's encouraging Job that what's, what he's experiencing is the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. And the discipline of the Lord is good. Discipline from God is defined as anything, anything that sculpts you more into the image of Christ. Anything that sculpts you more into the image of Christ. Sometimes it's the word of God that God disciplines you through. Maybe you're reading in your quiet time and, and the, the spirit practically has something jump off the page and pierce your heart. Sometimes that's the way the discipline of the Lord works. Sometimes it's a word from a friend. Sometimes a dear friend in church will, will take a walk with you and maybe say some, some encouraging things and maybe some things that challenge you in your life. Sometimes the discipline of God is the consequences of your sin. Sometimes you can point to something that that you're now reaping the consequences of. And sometimes, as we talked about in, in Job chapter 1, in the opening, in the first sermon, sometimes it's a meteor of unexplained suffering that God uses. And when discipline, God's discipline comes in the form of difficulties, we have to remember that God is doing good. Even in the difficulty, God is doing good. Neil Postman wrote, I believe, and I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. I believe that's true. And part of what makes it demanding is God's discipline of us. This is a huge category in the Psalms. I mean, in the, in the Proverbs. A huge category in the Proverbs. Proverbs 12.1 states it so succinctly. Listen to this proverb. Whoever loves, loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> Eliphaz is telling Job in chapter 5, God's discipline is good. In fact, it's so good and necessary that the writer of Hebrews quotes Eliphaz here. 
and expands on it in chapter 12 that he's writing. That's the quote that he quotes in chapter 12, Eliphaz's words. And then he goes on to, to, to expand on the benefits of God's discipline in Hebrews. And, it's, and he tells them that God's discipline shows that God loves you. If you're disciplined, you're loved. He even goes on to say, not only that, but you're loved. God's discipline shows that you're actually a true son. You're actually one of God's children. He goes on to tell them that in Hebrews that it leads to holiness. God's discipline leads to holiness. And it produces peace and righteousness in a life. God's discipline produces peace and righteousness. All these good benefits, all these fruit, wonderful fruits from the discipline of the Lord, and many times the discipline looks like suffering. Jacob shared in Sunday school a quote by John Piper that that I felt just fit perfectly here. He writes, God will not turn away from doing you good. He'll keep on doing good. He doesn't do good to his children sometimes and bad to them other times. He keeps on doing good and never will stop doing good for 10,000 ages and ages. When things are not are going bad, that does not mean God has stopped doing good. It means he is shifting things around to get them in place for more good. Isn't that great? That's a great thing to remember. When you're in that place, he's shifting things around so that he can do more good. Eliphaz also tells Job another good thing. If you look with me at chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he tells Job that to turn to God in suffering. Look at verse 8. As for me, Eliphaz says, I would seek God. And to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things in unsearchable, marvelous things without number. What great advice. Job, in your suffering, turn to God. Don't turn away from God. Because, brothers and sisters, there's only two ways you go in suffering. There's only two ways. And that is a pull towards God. Or a push away from God. Those are the two directions that suffering propels you. When Eli Weisel spent his first night in the Nazi death camp and saw the furnaces turning little children into what he described as wreaths of smoke, he later wrote about the experience as flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments, he wrote, which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams into dust. We understand that. But that's a push away. Suffering can propel you away from God. And as we shall see in in Job's response, sometimes he's tempted in that direction. I can't take it. Why are you doing this? You can't be a good God. I'm out of here. And perhaps some of you have entertained those thoughts. Let me rephrase that. We all have entertained those thoughts. There's no one righteous here. When things get really bad, 
we entertain those thoughts. By God's grace, we don't act on them. But maybe you've known friends who have acted on them and are far away from God now. And what Eliphaz is doing here is encouraging him, don't run, don't turn away from God, turn to God, stay close to God. That's our counsel. That's good counsel when brothers and sisters are in the pit, right? Allow your suffering to pull you closer and help brothers and sisters to see their situation like Peter saw his situation in John 6 when everybody deserted him after a hard teaching. Do you remember that? He taught a very hard teaching in John 6 and said many disciples left him after that. And he turned to his disciples and he said, do you want to go too? Remember what Peter said? Where, Where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I have nowhere else to go. Sometimes your suffering brings you to that place. I have nowhere else to go. Turn to God. Just like Peter. So Eliphaz gives some good counsel. But he also gives some bad counsel. And he gives it in a very bad way. I don't know if, if, you, if you, hopefully you've read through Job, but I want to draw your attention to verse, uh, four of, uh, verse 12 of chapter 4. If you look at that, if you look what Eliphaz is claiming there, it should be startling. Eliphaz says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received a whisper of it. And he goes on through the rest of the chapter using the leverage, that leverage to convince Job that some sin is responsible for his suffering. What Eliphaz is saying is, Job, I got this word from the Lord. Now, how how damaging can that be sometimes? In verse 17, he asks Job, asks Job rhetorically, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? What Eliphaz is basically saying there is, you are not innocent. You must have done something to deserve this. And by the way, the Lord told me that. I don't know if you've ever had this type of counsel given to you, but it's simply unfair. It comes in the form of an authoritative manner, doesn't it? And you, you have to heed it. Why? Because it's from the Lord. So we have to be careful and wise and discerning when people say things and speak into our lives. Sometimes it's said just like that the Lord has told me to tell you. And that, that, that's unfair. But sometimes it comes in other, other ways, which, which can be the Lord speaking into your life. I believe that the Lord uses the community of faith to speak into each other's lives. We've said that around here for years. 
Now, is it a word from the Lord that he audibly speaks and to me to tell Bernie and Kay, don't move, don't go? The Lord told me to tell you not to go. Of course not. But I think he does use you in people's lives. So how do you know when somebody comes up to you and says, I, I, I think you should be thinking about this direction in your life. It could be the Lord using a brother and sister to help you. Or it couldn't. So how do you discern that? I want to give you four quick ways to discern that. First, obviously, test it against the word of God. Scripture tells us again and again in 1 John, 1 Thessalonians 5, to test what is said against Scripture. Does what they say line up against Scripture? The Lord told me to tell you not to marry that girl. Okay? How do you know? Well, if that girl is not a Christian and you are, you test it against Scripture and you go, that lines up with Scripture. But what about if she's a Christian? Well, I think you you go on to step number two. Take it to the community of faith. Take what they say to the community of faith. Proverbs 11:14 says, "Where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety." Brothers and sisters, we say this around here all the time, and I hope it's catching. And I hope you're using it more than I'm hearing that is not being used. You should be going to people and saying, "This this this such and such such such. What do you think?" What about this, such and such, such? What do you think? You, that should be a normal rhythm in your life. Taking things to the community of faith. And especially when somebody is encouraging you or admonishing you in a direction. Thirdly, does, it, does what is said line up with the character of God? Does what is said line up with the character of God? This is particularly helpful when there's nothing specific in Scripture that will help you in any way. But you know what God sounds like. If you're reading scripture, you know, you know, you know him. It's like knowing a really, a, a, having a deep friendship and hearing something about that person that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like, like Blake. That doesn't mean it's not true, but it's just another part of it. And finally, does it glorify God? Does this path that this person is, is pointing you in the direction of glorify God? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our lives, it very basically, are on a trajectory always of glorifying God in everything we do. Do we do that perfectly? Absolutely not. But it should. Eventually and ultimately, Everything leads to more glory for God. Do I believe that the Lord encourages and admonishes his people through the body? Absolutely. But we must learn to test what we are told and have a healthy dose of discernment. So Eliphaz uses an awful tactic here. 
The Lord told me to tell you. He also gives even worse and more dangerous advice to Eliphaz in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Look with that with, to that with me. He says this. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. This is bad because it has so much good in it. That's why it's so hard to know, is this something that I should follow? Because it sounds biblical. What he's saying to Job is, not only do the innocent simply do not suffer, but, and you might, must have done something, there's a biblical principle here. You sow what you reap. That's what Eliphaz is telling him. Listen, you're, you're in a terrible place because you must have done something because the biblical principle is you sow what you reap. And that's a biblical principle. That Eliphaz is mixing things in here. The prophet Hosea warned Israel about their dire future because of their, their idol worship. And he says, for they, Israel, sow the wind, they will also reap the whirlwind. There's the, there's the principle right there. Paul picks up on this in Galatians 6 and says, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever one sows, what? He will reap. There's the biblical principle. And Eliphaz Said it first. Thus, what are we to do with this? You reap what you sow. Well, some suffering is fulfilling this principle. So when you see a brother or sister suffering, maybe this is true. Maybe it was caused by sin. You commit adultery, your wife divorces you, your kids won't talk to you, you're living alone in an apartment, you're lonely, your life is, is, is shattered. Yep, you're, so, you're reaping what you sowed. You cheated on your taxes, you get caught, you get sent to jail for 18 months, white collar jail. Yep, you are actually reaping what you sowed. You're promiscuous out of wedlock and you get an STD. You're reaping what you sowed. Yeah, you can point to that. There's the biblical principle working. In general, you reap what you sow. But here's the thing. We cannot, like Eliphaz, absolutize that principle. Because that's what Eliphaz is doing. He can't get it out of his head that, that this suffering cannot be anything but attached to some sort of sin. Because that's the way it works. And by the way, this is how the theology of, of all the counselors. And this is why their counsel, we have to be so discerning in, in what we read in Job. Again and again and again, you'll read the counselor saying, Job, you must have done something. That's why they keep repeating it. Because their theology won't let them do anything but absolutize this, this biblical principle. 
See, behind their insistent and rigid is a rigid theology. And it goes something like this. Here is the, the theology of the counselors. God is sovereign. True. God is absolutely just and fair. True. Therefore, and here's where they stray, he always punishes the wicked in this life. Do you catch it? Thus, if I suffer, I must have sinned. If I'm suffering, it's punishment for some sin because God is perfectly just and he punishes in this life. See, their theology is rigid and reductionistic. It's simplistic. It's trapped in human reason. And that's our temptation too. We want everything to be explainable. We see everything through the lens of cause and effect. And if we, like Eliphaz, absolutize, you reap what you sow, it leads to some pretty ugly conclusions. And I want to give you three quickly. Three ugly conclusions from absolutizing, you reap what you sow. First one, it's ugly because it can morph into the prosperity gospel. This is why Eliphaz is, has that prosperity perspective. Eliphaz tells Job, who has ever been innocent? Who has ever, who has ever been innocent and perished? Who has ever been innocent and perished? Do you hear it? Said in today's vernacular, who has enough faith will ever be poor? Eliphaz's cause and effect principle paves the way for the prosperity gospel, which says that if you're good enough, if you have enough faith, God will bless you. That's what Eliphaz and the prosperity preachers tell us over and over again. It's a direct cause and effect. Blessing equals innocence. Cursing or suffering equals guilt. And that is theologically ugly on many levels. But how it pertains to the book of Job is that it rejects the normalcy of suffering in the Christian life. We've said this so many times here. Suffering is normal for the Christian life. I mean, Peter wrote, don't be surprised when you suffer many kinds of trials as if something unusual was happening to you. Early Christians suffered from this. Hold it. Why am I suffering? Why am I being persecuted? The answer is because you're a believer. It's a normal part of the believer's life. Paul tells us that it's been given to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him but also to what? To suffer. It's been given you to believe. You're also given the normalcy of suffering. Jesus said on multiple occasions... No servant is above his master. If I suffered, you're going to suffer. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. And Eliphaz's prosperity perspective leaves no room for this. And we have to be aware of that, brothers and sisters. Secondly, the absolute reap and sow theology is ugly because it leaves no room for spiritual forces of evil. It leaves no room for spiritual forces of evil. We are given 
chapters 1 and 2. Eliphaz has no idea, nor does he believe in chapters 1 and 2. That there's a spiritual battle that's raging on. And the battlefield is actually Job's life. Ephesians 6 tells us clearly that there are rulers, that there are authorities, that there are dark powers, that there are spiritual forces of evil. The Bible puts it out there plainly. And you see it peeking around from time to time. In Genesis uh, 2, with, with Satan coming as a serpent. In Daniel 10, do you remember Daniel 10 when he prayed and the angel finally got to him after 21 days and appears to him and the angel tells Daniel, I would have gotten here sooner, but the, the angel, the demon above Persia gave me battle and delayed me. We read of three satanic temptations of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, does your theology have room for spiritual forces of evil? If in the reform perspective, many times that is drained away because we're so intellectual. Brothers and sisters, that is as real as this is. As real as this is. Spiritual forces of evil exist. Spiritual realm exists. Does your theology have room for the reality of evil forces? NPR journalist Scott Simpson has always avoided the word, using the word evil. He claimed he was a generation educated to believe that evil was a cartoonish moral concept. But then he watched with his daughters some of the sickening images from the chemical weapons attack in Syria in 2017 that killed scores of people, mainly children. Simon writes, we watched in silence. I've covered lots of wars, but could think of nothing to say to make any sense of this. Finally, one of my daughters turned to me and said, why would anyone do that? And I found myself saying, because they're evil. Theologian Donald Bloch writes, let us cease arguing about the existence of demons and concern ourselves with what the demons are actually doing. What Job is teaching us is that sometimes, sometimes, what you're going through is the spiritual forces of evil. Sometimes, that's true. I'll ask again, does your theology have room for that? I think biblically it should. Lastly, Eliphaz's theology is ugly because it leaves no room for unexpected grace. It leaves no room for unexpected grace. It was early Saturday morning when Bob, in Bob's sophomore year of high school, he was eager to get his job done at the local bowling lanes. The evening before, he had stayed late to mop the muddy tile floor because the janitor was sick. He hadn't bothered to tell his boss about the janitor so he could surprise him. He got up Saturday morning and excitedly went into his job at the bowling alley, stepped through the door, and Bob saw inches of water covering the bowling alley. 
he suddenly realized what he had done. He had left the faucet on. At that moment, his boss turned the corner and greeted him with a hug. He looked at Bob in the face and said, Thanks for trying. Eliphaz has no room in his theology for unexpected grace. He has told Job, You sin, you suffer. And that's true. There's a spiritual principle that we quote an awful lot. We know it by heart. It's Romans 6.23. You know it? The wages. That's the spiritual principle. We're born into sin. And we're instantly put on that road. It applies to each and every person in this room. The Bible tells us over and over again that we are sinners. Thus we deserve what we get. We deserve to be separated from God forever. We deserve conscious, eternal torment. There's no getting around it. And if God were Eliphaz, that's where we'd end up. That'd be the end of the story. But God is not Eliphaz. God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of unexpected grace. Ephesians 5.2 says, But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. God is perfectly just. Sin must be punished. But God is equally loving and merciful. And he did something quite unexpected. He sent his son sacrificially, to live the life that we cannot and to die the death that we deserve. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did. In order to offer each and every person a way around Romans 6.23. In a way, we're all that woman in John 8. Remember that woman? caught in adultery, dragged out, guilty, definitely guilty, caught her in the act. We're that woman. And Jesus bends down and starts writing in the sand and says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. You remember, they all just start leaving until it's just she and Jesus. And he says something quite unexpected, doesn't he? Here's God. Perfectly just. Perfectly just. He could strike her down. Remember what he says? Where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. 
That's what he says to each one of us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it directs us, it encourages us, and admonishes us, Lord. And as, as we leave here, I pray that, that we are changed in some small way because of it. Do that. Give us, each one of us, that gift, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.